Welcome, welcome. You're listening to our podcast, Two Massage Therapists in a Microphone. My name is Mark. I'm a registered massage therapist, registered kinesiologist here in Toronto, Ontario. And hopefully you guys have been digging on everything that we've been putting out episode after episode. We're sitting down in the office. It's about quarter after five on a Thursday afternoon. And I've got a really special guest who again has opted not to sit on the couch. No one sits on the couch. I don't know why. You want to tell me why? I don't know. It's in, it's in the corner. So maybe you know that's what? why. Maybe I'll sit on the couch. (laughs) We have Lydia sitting in our space. She is a lawyer working for Kazabraki Law Firm in uh, downtown Toronto. And uh, you know what? I think I'm just going to throw it to Lydia and let her talk about what she does there, the niche thing that they have going on at their law firm, and how this is going to be super applicable for all of us regulated healthcare professionals. Uh, Thanks, Mark, and thanks for having me uh, on the pod. My name is Lydia Yermakova, and I'm a lawyer at Kazabraki Law, and what we do at the firm is um, essentially advocacy for professionals. So uh, we represent particularly regulated health professionals uh, before the regulators, so before the colleges, and with respect to your group of clients, it'll be massage therapists uh, and other manual therapists before whatever their regulatory body is. So you're dealing with then anyone that's had a complaint made to them from the college, um, whether it is some sort of professional misconduct, sexual abuse allegations, what else What else would you put in that Right, so... Um, any proceeding before the college, so let's take as an example, massage therapists. Mm-hmm. So any proceeding before the college, it might be a uh, complaint. It might be an investigation commenced by the college. It might be a registration matter. Okay. Uh, it might be, if if it's already gone through that process, it might be a discipline hearing, um, fitness to practice. Um, so those are the main areas that we deal with, uh, or it might be an appeal from those decisions to the health professions appeal and review board, or it might be even a judicial review proceeding from, uh, which would be an appeal from a discipline committee decision, for instance. All right. So we got a whole bunch of things going on in the mix and I don't want anyone to get left out because we said a whole bunch of things that are really, really fast. Sure. (laughs) So let's, let's, let's start at the beginning. You know what? I'm really interested about you. Sure. What made you decide to get into this type of practice? So I really like this practice now. I've been doing it for a number of years now and really from the beginning of my practice, I've been focusing at least in part and now 100% on uh, on doing regulatory defense work mm-hmm. in the space of regulated uh, professionals. Um, what I really like about the practice is that um, you're often dealing with somebody whose entire, um, you know, entire ability to make a living and entire life is um, is sometimes uh, an issue and, and, and people really care about the work that they do, usually, particularly in the health space. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of people's identity to be um, a healthcare provider or even other professions that are regulated. You know, it's a big part of my identity that I am a lawyer and it's the same, I'm sure, for you in terms of being massage therapist and for your listeners, um, whatever it is they do. So often, you you know, you're helping someone through a really hard time in their life uh, where a big part of their entire person is sort of being put in question, so yeah, to say. Sure. And, and you really can help them overcome that. And it's a very rewarding practice. And I really like it because of it. Right on, right on. All right. So let's start right at the beginning, because you did say things about, for example, registration matters. Sure. So what type of registration matters are we talking about? So for example, I've heard the many, many stories because I used to work at a private career college as massage therapy instructor, uh, head of that program. I did that for about eight years. And I would always have a small handful of people that failed at the licensing exam. Sure. And then they were debating on whether they should appeal the decisions. Right. So can you give us some ideas on when it might be a good idea to pull the trigger on maybe appealing a decision based on failing your licensing exam? So it's a great question and and start and you sort of you're starting even earlier than the registration at the colleges. Before we get into this whole discussion, I do just want to make clear yeah. that um, I am an Ontario lawyer. So right. when we're discussing yeah this, uh, we are talking about the Ontario rules and the Ontario laws and the Ontario colleges if, to the extent we're talking about them. So I know you have some non-Ontario listeners. So many, many. They're learning about the Ontario process yep. and hopefully it'll be informative for them, but I'm not sure um, it would totally apply to them and their rules would be probably quite different from ours. So mm-hmm. they should always consult with their own lawyers. And the other thing that I want to do is everything I say here today is just sort of informative in nature and no one listening should construct this as legal advice and, and everything will depend on the facts of their of their own case. So none of this is I'm legal. I'm smiling advice. because 
<laughs> Before Such, we really get into I'm it. I'm <laughs> smiling because that's that's lawyer talk right there. <laughs> well, that is what I do. Exactly. <laughs> so, okay. It's a really great question and it really starts... It does start for many uh, professionals at the at the not even the registration at the college stage, but at the licensing, yep. um, the licensing stage, which is typically a requirement for registration at the colleges. So, and this happens with massage therapists, and it happens with all the other professions. Uh, you're typically required to take some kind of test before being granted a license, mm-hmm. and those bodies who administer the tests are typically themselves fairly. Um, they have their own fairly robust appeal processes and you can move through those processes if you fail or are given a fail grade. So you could be given a fail grade for any number of reasons, including, you know, for instance, if there's allegations of some kind of cheating or some kind of unfairness or, or oftentimes we see all of these, um, these exams tend to be be very confidential. So, Mm -hmm. you know, sharing of exam information can be a real issue that comes up in all kinds of cases of this nature. So whether or not to appeal really depends on the facts of the case. Um, Mm -hmm. You can often rewrite um, and that will for many people be sometimes a better option than appealing. Uh, however, the, these attempts are usually limited, so you can only write the test for some of the colleges only a certain number of times, yeah, so, so that may not be available. So for massage therapists in Ontario, it's three attempts. Exactly. So so really to answer your question, it really will depend whether or not to appeal on, on what stage of that process you're in, whether um, whether on your own calculation you would rather attempt it again. Right. Um, if you have a good argument to make, uh, that may be something that, that you may want to argue before the appeal body, but... Um, really, it's sort of each case really does turn on its facts. Can I give you an example? <laughs> Can I give you an example of you where for a friend? <laughs> uh, of where I told someone go get a lawyer for this? Mm-hmm. Right? Okay, and I wish I knew about you guys before. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish I I wish I had better googling skills. <laughs> the other half of what we do at Two Massage Therapists and Microphone is our continuing education company, mm-hmm. Con It Is Two, and one of the things that we have is an OSCE preparation. Mm-hmm. I had a student who came to me for help, who had failed twice before. She's hearing impaired, Mm -hmm. and she failed twice before. And the two times that she failed before, she swears up and down, the interpreter was not doing what I was asking. The interpreter was not interpreting my words properly. And she swears that up and down. And the college was not allowing her to bring in her own interpreter, because they could consider that cheating in some way. And so she failed again. And she failed with a much higher mark than she did the previous times, um, partly because she, she got extra help. But I told her, you know what? You need to get a lawyer for this. Because again, she swears up and down, this is an interpretation issue. And we're talking failing by 2%. Right. So in that scenario, I know I'm just putting you on the spot with that. <laughs> like, yeah. it, would I have been, like, was my advice to her a stupid idea? Like, get a lawyer for this? Based on what you describe, obviously, I do not know anything about the right. case, but... And um, I can only speak is, to it from what she tells me. That is a good hypothetical of a kind of situation where um, someone should really consider consulting a lawyer. And, right. and and again, the kind of thing that I would do if if that kind of hypothetical came to me and it was a hypothetical client who came and presented those set of facts to me, we would talk about the options that, uh, you know, that she would have in that situation and, um, and talk about the possibility of an appeal and mm-hmm. sort of what the chances of that appeal are based on the documents that she brings in and, uh, and, and the story that she tells. And, um, what my job is in in the context of all of the work that I do, both in front of the boards who administer exams and the colleges and its various, um, in sort of in the various settings of the college, is to tell the best story on behalf of the client and right. then uh, and then advocate for them in the best way and to really present whatever the facts are in the most favorable way to them. And so, uh, and I do that for all my clients and all in all the settings. So, mm-hmm. you know, an example of that we we would we would talk about you know, how to approach, um, how to approach an appeal and, and, or how to approach a, you know, a, a, a next step that is in, uh, the best interest of the person who's come to us. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I felt really bad for her. She's super deflated because she has no 
intent on going back to school now. She kind of just threw the whole idea out the window. And and it can be really tough sort of coming back to to my initial point. It can be very tough uh, for people who are going through these things, whether they have been going to school and can't get registered or they have, they have become registered and, and that ability to continue to practice is, is, is under some kind of question mm-hmm. that can really impact the core of their person. It really can make someone go through a really hard time in their life when when they can't work. Uh, or can't start to work. And, and I think that comes back to the first point that I was making in terms of why it, it can be such a rewarding field because we can really guide people through that. Right. Sorry, I'm just going to fire off a whole bunch sure. because just no, because I've, 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 <laughs> I've, I've been around it for so long that I always get the questions like what can and can't be done and everything else. So like, for example, we know that massage is in the public domain. Anyone can provide massage or body work, whether they have to get a holistic license or whatever the case is. But nonetheless, you do not need to be a member of the College of Massage Therapist of Ontario to provide body work or massage. You do need to be a member if you are going to use the title registered massage therapist or the words massage and therapy in any combination, as far as I understand it to be, where the College of Massage Therapists, they kind of own the rights or it's trademarked the, the term massage therapy in Ontario. So can you tell me a little bit about the use of the protected title? Yes. So um, only uh, massage therapists who are members of the College of Massage Therapy, of the CMTO, College of Massage Therapists Ontario, uh, only people who are members and hold valid certificates of registration of that college are permitted to use the title Registered Massage Therapist, RMT. That is a protected title that can only be used by those professionals who hold those licenses. So uh, one of the cases which which we see, and not just with RMTs, but um, with actually lots of other professions as well, is people who are not licensed, who are either using that title or they can be uh, reasonably perceived by a person as being a, as, as holding themselves out as a registered massage therapist. And the and the proper the sort of the legal term is holding out. So in those cases. Um, there can be investigations and there can be court applications ultimately uh, to stop a person who is not registered, uh, is not a, a licensee of the college from 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 practicing in a way that makes reasonable people think that they are an RMT. Can you give us maybe some ideas of what a non-registered, I don't want to use the word therapist because they're not a therapist, someone who does massage body work, what might that look like if they are potentially confusing the general public where it can potentially be an issue? Right. So, so what is a good practice in those circumstances is to make it really clear that you're not an RMT. So not you know, not using terms that sound similar, not not using um, not using titles that can sort of sound like uh, like those three words, uh, but sort of scrambling them around a bit, or right. or just kind of you know operating on on the idea. Well, I'm not using the title RMT. I'm using something close to it. If it's mm-hmm. something close to it, you could potentially be straying into an area of holding out, which could potentially lead to to consequences, to legal consequences. So. In those situations, if if you're if you're doing um, it, and, and and massage not being a, a, a controlled act in and of itself, uh, and if you are doing that, I would just advise anyone in that circumstance to make it really clear uh, to their clients that they're not registered with the college, and and you know to and you can take lots of different precautions to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it really depends on the context, but. Um, just just being kind of honest and clear about the fact that you're not trying to hold yourself out as being a member of the college. Right. And I think the biggest thing there is probably the use of certain words, as you said before. Exactly. I'm under the belief, and I don't know why, maybe I'm wrong, that the terms massage and therapy in any combination in Ontario would only be permitted to be used by members of the college. And that would go into the general question of would a reasonable person perceive that service provider to, would would a, would a, would an ordinary reasonable person be under the misapprehension they're a member of the college. And right. if and if you're straying in a situation where that's the case, that could potentially lead to a holding out situation where the where the college might take action. What type of action can the college take on something like that? So in those situations, uh, because the person who is not 
licensed by the college, they can't be disciplined by the college in the same way that a that a member would be able to be disciplined. Right. So in those situations, kind of the ultimate um, thing that can happen is an injunction uh, brought by the college. So that's a court proceeding in which uh, the college would be asking for a court order prohibiting the person from continuing that, that practice. If there's a court order which prohibits you from a certain practice and you continue to practice, you'd be in a situation where you're in a breach of a court order. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that would be not good. So I'm assuming then that on the college website, this would be their list of illegal practitioners. And I'm just assuming that they have gone through all the work to highlight these people. And therefore, is there such a list? I'm not sure. Yeah. Hmm. So the college has a list of illegal practitioners. And I was always wondering, like, how did they come up with this list? I guess these are people that they might have pursued some sort of action against. I'm assuming. It's very possible. So not every case will lead to uh, to an injunction. Okay. So uh, there will be some cases where you can agree the other person will agree not to practice so it doesn't have to go to court but sometimes it does so let's talk a little bit about professional misconduct yep are you of the mindset that as soon as i have something going on with the college that i should seek representation or generally yes uh but but that can sometimes be impractical and and of course it would always be best uh, for to seek legal advice when uh, you get any kind of complaint or issue at the college or okay. investigation. Um, certainly, if it's of a serious enough nature that you're starting to yourself get concerned about it, you really should seek legal advice. A lot of practitioners in this uh, space will have insurance of some nature, right. and that's why you pay for it, and that may be a good time to access it. But certainly the earlier, what we find is that the earlier we get involved, the more we're able to um, to facilitate a more positive outcome for the professional. Uh, and, and there are times where if we get involved later on, we end up kind of cleaning up or having to mitigate uh, mm-hmm. some of the things that have already happened. And that's really not a good uh, position to be in from an overall perspective. What are some of the, uh, the professional misconduct things that you would suggest, let's get legal representation right away? Right. So... Certainly the this this kind of the super serious things in, in your field will be fraud um and, and, and sexual allegations. So if it's one of those two things, I mean, that is a no-brainer. You absolutely should at least consult with a lawyer at, at an early stage because those are serious things that are that are really threatening to your license in all kinds of ways. Okay. So if those two things, for sure. Can we, for everyone that's listening, so everyone's on the same page, let's define what we mean by fraud. And maybe if you can give us an idea of the different types of fraud that maybe you've seen or heard of without obviously giving any specifics. Of course. Yeah. I mean, with, in the context of, of massage therapists and, and the, and the, and the, and the sort of the type of listeners that you have, probably the most typical fraud example would be private insurance fraud. So um, that will be, and, and sometimes the the complaint itself can come from the insurer. That will happen from time to time. So it may even be uh, an insurer investigation that predates the college. Right. Um, that would already be very concerning, and that's something that you know that's something we would be able to assist with in terms of um, in terms of responding to the insurer's investigation, but. Uh, the most, you know, that that I think is the most typical instance of fraud in the context of of, of massage therapy cases that we've seen that have, have been reported and that typically come up. Mm-hmm. In terms of, uh, in so is there is there other examples of fraud that you can think of that that's really the main one that that when I think about fraud in the RMT yeah I, the only thing I think of is uh, extended healthcare and MVA stuff yeah. <laughs> Right. So and I guess MVA stuff will sort of, again, fall under the general category of insurer. But but yeah. typically they'll involve some kind of insurer uh, paying the bills and usually pretty big bills. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the insurer has an incentive to kind of police those bills because they keep paying them and then they might start an investigation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if fraud is, is obviously uh, an, a, an act of professional misconduct, it sort of goes without saying, but... You know, it's not to say that every allegation of fraud is, in fact, an instance of fraud. Right. Sometimes it can be explained. Uh, it sometimes are sometimes a record keeping error. Sometimes it's poor record keeping. It's not actually fraud. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's someone else doing the fraud, and and then you're you know whoever it is is a bit of an innocent bystander or at least a bit of a dupe. Like so, they're not totally part of the fraud itself. They're just kind of one aspect of it. So. Yeah. Um, 
certainly if there's an allegation of fraud of any nature um, being made, it's, it's, it's a serious case and, 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 and that requires proper representation. Yeah. When I was teaching, I used to go, there's something called the Ontario Council of Private Massage Therapy Colleges. It, essentially, it, it's a group of private colleges that get together and they discuss matters and they also invite in the, the association, the RMTAO, the CMTO, and the uh, community colleges to come speak um, at these different meetings. And I was sitting into one of these meetings since we're on the topic of fraud. And there was a presentation by an OPP officer, not an officer, detective. I don't know. I don't know what levels of OPP. But he was talking about they were planning on or they were they were taking steps on charging clinics and practitioners yep. for criminal conspiracy yep. versus a fraud charge. Right. Can you speak to that a little bit? Because oh, I, I talk about this in one of the previous the, podcasts. Um, like the, the, what, what, what would make criminal conspiracy? I think that's where I was well, most the, confused. The difference, I think, I think the, the the larger point here, and and whether a specific case amounts to a conspiracy or a fraud, I can't really speak to because it just depends on the facts of that case. So right, conspiracy right. is going to involve a whole bunch of people conspiring. Um, you do bring up an important point where uh, the reason. The, the reason why you, you might need representation in early stage, particularly in the case of a fraud allegation, as well as a, a sexual abuse allegation, yeah. is that it is conceivable and sometimes happens that criminal charges can also be laid. Right. And in the, the, in the scale of seriousness of things that happen to you legally, being charged criminally is probably the most serious thing that can happen. And, and there's lots of different considerations that apply in the criminal context that don't apply in the civil or administrative context that you want to be aware of at an early stage and, be, and, and to make sure you protect your interests in, in, in the event that somebody is charged criminally, that mm-hmm. they protect those interests at an early stage. And, and, and really having a lawyer in that situation is, is imperative to make sure that you don't jeopardize possibly a criminal case later on down the road. Mm-hmm. And that can happen with fraud uh, and, and, and sexual uh, abuse allegations as well. So let's, let's talk uh, sexual abuse allegations. Right. So the college has a zero tolerance policy. Exactly. Yeah. So can you, uh, can you give our listeners the definition of what zero tolerance policy is all about. Right. So zero, zero tolerance uh, towards sexual abuse is really policy by, it's not really a policy, it's the law uh, of all the colleges where uh, in no circumstances is a massage therapist or any health professional permitted to have sexual relations with, uh, with a patient or a client. That means your spouse. Uh, and that means anyone who you're in a romantic sexual relationship with. And we find this in the RHPA. That's what And that would be in the Regulated Health Professions Act uh, and in the Health Professionals Procedural Code. Okay. Uh, so that is in the overall act that applies to all the all the other all the other professions as well. So the zero tolerance policy is really a strong stance on preventing sexual abuse of uh, of patients by members, uh, and that involves no, you know, no relationships with patients of any kind, in- including with with spouses. Right. The College of Dentists is the only exception. Uh, they do have a spousal exemption exemption in their in their act, but I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that mm-hmm. uh, because it, there's only one exception to that, and that's the College of Dentists. Mm-hmm. And and sorry, and and the other kind of aspect of zero tolerance is that if a if a me- the penalties tend to be quite severe, so if a member is found to have engaged uh, in in certain frank sexual acts with patients, even if it's their spouse, the requirement to revoke a license is mandatory. So the discipline committee panel would not have any discretion to say, well, you know, well it's their spouse. Revocation seems extreme. In those cases, they don't have any discretion based on the legislation. So is there a difference then, because I've noticed, at least through the media, of which I don't know how trusting I am, but I've seen a growing trend of sexual abuse cases that don't go straight to the college anymore. I feel like they used to. Like I've been a massage therapist for almost 15 years. And I feel in that time I've seen a trend where sexual abuse cases used to go to the college Mm -hmm. and the college would obviously not, at that time, they wouldn't be reporting or making public allegations, they would only be making public decisions that were happening. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that there's been a trend that people have started, instead of going to the college first or at all, go straight to the authorities. 
Which you then, mean the police? Yes, which then makes it public, correct? Well, it depends. Yes. Yeah. So the, in my experience, it, it can happen any one of a million ways. Sometimes the police will choose not to charge. So you would still have uh, you would still have the allegation at the college and not at the police. So right. sometimes it really depends on the circumstances of the person who's making the complaint. So sometimes you see people go to the college first and then the police. Sometimes you see people go to the police and then the college. Yeah. Sometimes they'll do both. Uh, sometimes the college will find out about it through some other means, right? So um, I, I'm not sure... In my practice, I've seen uh, a specific pattern as between those. Uh, I think in my experience, there's, uh, you know, the police being involved is a common part of these uh, cases, uh, of the sexual abuse cases. But mm-hmm. who goes first uh, can happen either way. So maybe the, the, the best thing to do then is... Can we go through the whole complaints procedure, right? So coming from the point of someone has, uh, someone is bringing a complaint to the college and maybe you can give us an idea of like, for example, the form of which the complaint needs to be made in some sort of recorded form and then take us through the whole process that the college would go through. Um, typically, if a complaint is filed by a patient, it will come to the college uh, through the college website. There are other ways that, that you can do, you can file a complaint, but mm-hmm. typically it's it usually goes through a form on the college website um, and it requires the patient to, or whoever it is, uh, the, the member of the public who's filing the complaint, it requires them to fill out a form um, and sort of set out in general terms their allegations against what happened. Um, after that happens, uh, the, uh, the form goes to the college and under the rules under the RHPA, the Act uh, and the Code, uh, the college is required to give the member notice of the complaint uh, and, and uh, allow the member an opportunity to respond to the complaint mm-hmm. within a period of time. And the member doesn't have to respond, do they? The member does not have to respond. Okay. Uh, they do have a duty to cooperate. So those those two things are different, but they have a duty to cooperate with, with any investigation which might arise out of a complaint. So right. at a point, if it's just a complaint uh, and, uh, and, the, and the member will typically get a letter in the mail uh, letting them know that the complaint's been filed and then perhaps enclosing a copy of the complaint, um, at that stage, they have... They may respond, but they don't have to respond. Mm-hmm. Once that happens, uh, that complaint may go back to, uh, sorry, that response to the complaint may go back to the complainant for further comments. And those further comments would typically be also provided to the member if they choose, if, if the complainant chooses to put in more comments. And at that stage, uh, the, the investigator, the college investigator may also be able to get more uh, evidence from, for instance, other parties, from other documents, things like that. Uh, and at that stage, the matter, um, once there's been a complaint and response and perhaps some documents, that matter would go before the ICRC. So that's the Inquiries, Complaints and uh, Reports Committee. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the ICRC is a committee of the college uh, where um, there's massage therapists. If we're talking about the massage therapists. Yep. Uh, there will be members who are massage therapists and public, uh, publicly appointed members. Um, they sit in panels of between three and five, uh, and they consider complaints which have been filed and to which responses have been made, and there's been some investigation. Mm-hmm. In a complaint scenario, uh, at a certain point after all that's happened, that file will be presented to the ICRC, and the ICRC have a number of dispositions which they can make at this stage. Uh, number one, they could choose to start a Section 751C investigation, so they could choose to commence a larger investigation, which would give the college a little more powers. Um, at that stage, we see interviews with members. Uh, we see, uh, you know, just a broader investigation, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, does the member know that the investigation has escalated or no? They would receive notice, yeah. So okay. they would typically receive notice from the college that an investigator has been appointed under okay. Section 751C. Can the college do any type of investigation without without giving notice like that? Yes. So it, it, in, under a different set of circumstances that does, it does not arise out of a complaint, right. um, the college could investigate uh, prior to giving notice, yes. Okay. But when it comes down to it being based on a complaint, the registrant... Yeah. According to the rules, according to the legislation as it's set out, if it is a public complaint, there is a 
notice requirement uh, within the within the act and the code. Okay. Okay. So, and just coming back to the ICRC, yeah, the, sure. the dispositions other than starting an investigation that there's there's in some cases and in some colleges and the colleges differ, but um, there's also a possibility that at that stage the ICRC issues a disposition. So that could be anything from. Uh, no further action if it's if if there's no merit to the complaint, for instance, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, advice to the member about how to improve their practice or some kind of educational advice, just not not a not a specific take this course, but right. just like sort of, um, you know, usually see it sort of just you know remember to always be to you know to always be courteous to um, to patients or to remind them of X, Y, and Z, or to always remember to ask patients about how their treatment was something like that something fairly fairly minor that's that's what you'd see with an advice disposition mm-hmm. and then after that um the two kind of more serious dispositions that are available to the icrc are the uh, specified continuing education and remediation plan or program it's either plan or program it's it's called a scurp that's kind of how how people usually uh, refer to it or an oral caution which uh, requires the member to attend before a panel of the icrc in person and be kind of a admonished in person. Mm-hmm. And uh, just coming back to the first um, the first scenario, if they do choose to commence a broader investigation, the member does have an opportunity to respond to that investigation. And then all of that whole investigation would come back before the ICRC and they would still have those disposition options that I just described. Sort of the ultimate disposition at the ICRC and the most serious one is a referral to the discipline committee. Mm-hmm. So that's in, the, that's in a situation if the ICRC feels that and the matter serious enough to warrant a full hearing. I, I think it's so important because everyone, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to instill fear in people, but I want, I want you to realize that that people are fucking weird. Sometimes your patients are weird. Sometimes your patients and clients do and say weird shit, and it can land you in a really bad place. I think it's just important to remember that there are certain professional boundaries and expectations that exist. Even in, even in situations like uh, even in situations where you might be in the right, there's still sort of a moral and ethical conduct that applies to professionals, particularly under the RHBA and other professionals, mm-hmm. which does require them to kind of take the high high road. And even in those situations, so that's a really important thing to remember, and that's something that you know you could run into problems with and criticism with if you don't actually follow that. I've just heard too many stories of people that I know that have had major run-ins with sexual abuse allegations and they swear up and down up and down up and down did not do what i'm being accused of and it lands them in a position where they've had their license taken away or they voluntarily gave up their license because they don't want to have to deal with the college anymore but they still end up dealing with the authorities in a criminal charge i mean i can't really speak to obviously to those individual cases um i think that the takeaway really is is that those allegations can be very serious yes it's very important to handle them properly at an early stage yeah because even if you are found innocent, you know, through a decision of the college or through a court of law, sometimes you just can't fucking recover off of something like that. It's impossible after your name has been dragged through and uh, people have already made up their minds on you as a therapist and ethically where you sit, sometimes that you just can't recover from it. Right. And particularly with, um, we see this with the internet and particularly with criminal charges, it can be hard to kind of erase that and walk that back, mm-hmm. even in a situation of acquittal. And we do do criminal work as well so particularly um when it intersects with uh with regulatory work so oftentimes we'll have a case where there's both a regulatory element and a criminal element so we typically will do both can you give us some ideas then as well since we're on the criminal tip immediate revocation of license coming along with certain criminal charges criminal charges and controlled substance charges right so i believe the there is a list of charges so i i, I know there's a list of charges which mm-hmm. if you are convicted of one of those very serious offenses um, the the penalty is mandatory revocation. Those charges typically include sort of violent 
uh, violent crimes, child pornography offenses, um, and there's 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 an entire list of them. Yeah, and, and there's also drug charges on there as well. And there's also, but but they're of sort of a more ser- serious nature. Yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I see a lot of stuff on Facebook because I'm in a lot of massage therapy Facebook groups. So there's a couple things that I wanted to kind of get your insight on. Whenever we have to renew our license, we have to inform the college if mm-hmm. we've been convicted of or charged uh, or charged, mm-hmm. right? So if we have proceedings against us or anything like that. Even if we haven't been found guilty of something, whether it's a provincial, federal, municipal charge, and municipal charges kind of mess me up a little bit because I always thought they were in reference to criminal charges, but municipal charges as well. I think that is something new that the college added in. How worried do I have to be if I've had some sort of charge, but I'm not found guilty of anything or I'm in the process of proceedings? Okay. And this is a hypothetical person, right? Yeah, it's a hypothetical <laughs> Okay. Person. So his name is not Mark. No, right. Um, <laughs> so, so the, the takeaway is this, the recent amendments to the, to the act increase the, um, the amount of disclosure a member has to provide to the college in terms of uh, having ever been charged or convicted of an offense, if the college finds out about it, uh, it could be a serious problem. Okay. If it's if there's been a non-disclosure that is required, uh, and if that occurred, that could be a serious problem, which could result in regulatory uh, consequences, such as some sort of discipline, right. potentially even revocation, depending how serious the charge are. Mm-hmm. So the the reality is is that that's you know that's what the rule is. So whether or not it's it's sort of up to you if you want to follow that rule, but that's what the rule is, and that's mm-hmm. what is required of you. So the likelihood of that coming to light uh, is is you know. I'm sure there are cases out there where it just has not come to light. But if it ever does come to light, mm-hmm. it will be a problem uh, and, and the college could choose to pursue it. Right, right. Um, what about for things like confidentiality? So we were talking about uh, insurance fraud. And again, on these Facebook groups, I always see, maybe even like once a week, um, Great Westlife called me up and wanted to know the dates of this person's appointment. Is this information that I can give out without directly having written consent from my patient or client? That is a specific set of facts that it would it would really depend on what the request is under. So I, I can't really answer that. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Because a lot of the responses are, well, you know, when when you when you have your extended health care plan, you know, it, it clearly states in there. This is that. what I mean is that it would really depend on what the circumstances of the request are. Uh, it's a common thing that happens, but uh, it, it really, really really, really would depend on who the request is coming from, what mm-hmm. the context of the request is, so, what the purpose of the request is. So do you have any advice for an RMT on how to handle that situation? So I'll give an example. Some people have responded like, uh, don't offer up any information. So for example, you're only confirming or denying things, right? So if they're asking patient X, um, tell me the dates that they've been there. Right. So I... Again, it really depends. It, it just depends. It really depends if you're worried about something or not as well. And it depends if you have the ability to disclose anything more than, than what's being requested. It, it, it really depends on the facts for that specific case, especially it not coming from the college. You'd really have to look into whether you have the right to disclose. And then you'd have, consider, you'd have to consider um, whether or not you're concerned about anything. So without getting super specific, obviously, Mm -hmm. give us an idea of some of the more common professional misconduct things that you have to deal with. Professional misconduct things. (laughs) So so, uh, problems in in, in members' practice. Yes. Okay. So, and they might not, and the reason I make that distinction is that may not necessarily amount to professional misconduct. A finding of professional misconduct has to be made by the discipline committee. Dispositions by the ICRC do not amount to professional misconduct, but they are concerned. So they are concerns the college have had, yep. uh, which are not technically speaking acts of professional misconduct, because gotcha. those can only be made by a discipline committee. Okay, um, but they are concerns, and that they're 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 essentially lesser. Like professional misconduct is just like a like a bigger thing, mm-hmm. and, and dispositions by the ICRC are are, are slightly less. <laughs> so, in terms of concerns that we see that typically come up at the college, and particularly the ICRC stage, are concerns about record keeping, and the college has very high standards of what they expect uh, of records, the kind of documentation they expect to see. They expect to see it with every patient encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, they expect, you know, those uh, those records to be accessible to patients in fairly complete form and accessible to other treatment providers mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, really reproducible. And, and it's important for continuity of care and it's important for 
um, you know, for, for for instance, if there's like ever a lawsuit and they need to get their records, right. if it's in the context of an MVA or something like that. So it's really important to maintain those standards of documentation. And the college has a very comprehensive policy. The CMTO, again, mm-hmm. has a very comprehensive policy on record keeping, uh, which um, everyone should make sure that they follow. Uh, and, and, a, and an issue comes up sometimes in the RMT context is that some RMTs own their practices in their clinics and that's great, but some of them work for a place which may not have the best record keeping practices. Right. And that can be very challenging for the individual members because they, and, and often those places aren't owned by members. So um, it can be challenging for an individual member to you know, comply with all their obligations in the context of a workplace that's not being supportive of that. Right. Uh, so in those circumstances, uh, and, and I've had this come up a number of times, in those circumstances, um, you do have to remember that you, you can't you can't outsource that compliance to your boss and you can, you ultimately won't be able to point your, point your finger at your boss. Right. Uh, so your it can be really challenging. It really can be very challenging and you, you're, you would be putting your ability to practice at risk all the time working in that kind of setting. So uh, it can be really challenging and that's another situation where legal advice is very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a thing that comes up all the time and, and record keeping in, in that kind of setting can be very challenging. Yeah, we get that a lot because we have a record keeping course and a lot of people that take a record keeping mm-hmm. course have been mandated from the college. You got to go take a record keeping yep. course. And other people just take them because they're like, my records are shit. I got to figure out how to do this yep. properly. And a big thing that comes up is like the place that I work at, just as you described, they don't want us to do it like this or they want. And my answer is always, it is your professional obligation to follow standard that's it and it is so challenging because oftentimes you know it's difficult as the employee or as the you know the person who you know it's difficult to go up to your boss and say you have to change this because you know it's not just about how i want it it's Mm -hmm. because because it's of what the requirements are uh, and and that can be really challenging to do, and and that that's a that's a that's a really challenging situation. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. Are most of the record keeping things you see coming from a peer assessment, or are they coming from some sort of a larger investigation? So record keeping is interesting because it will often pop up as a side issue on whatever the initial complaint is. So, yeah, because the first thing the can, college does is go through someone's can, records. Uh, well, they'll pull the records, yeah. right? It's one of the main things that they do in terms of their investigation. So you could have a situation, and and again. Uh, happens all the time in in all the professions that you have a situation of a complaint that doesn't really have a lot of merit uh, but the thing that ends up resulting in more serious consequences is uh, is the record keeping and particularly now where um, scurps and cautions are uh, are mandated to be posted on the public register. Mm-hmm. Um, you can end up in a situation where a complaint that, in terms of the actual care provided, wasn't particularly serious, and, per- and if, if it was only just about that, may have resulted in a no further action kind of disposition. Mm-hmm. But uh, what ends up happening is that there's a larger issue flagged about record keeping, which results in potentially a scurp or a caution, which which is going to hang out on your public register right. for a long time. Do, they, do those go off your public register? What's What's interesting is because um, there's a process by way of which you could take things off the public register. Uh, it is very new. Uh, it hasn't really been used all that much by, by any of the colleges yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and essentially the act uh, provides for some potential application to have the information removed from the pu- public register if that information becomes obsolete. The meaning of the term obsolete is a bit in the up in the air at this point. So mm-hmm. I can't really give you any more guidance than that. It is theoretically possible, but um, I wouldn't I wouldn't count on it essentially at this stage. Mm. Yeah, Maybe that, a bit later. <laughs> I know I don't even I didn't even know that that existed, but you said like that's that's pretty new. Yeah. Wow, it's good to know because I'm, you know, I know people who have stuff written there. And I'm pretty sure they'd like it removed. <laughs> For sure, right? <laughs> so, what other areas um, other than record keeping are you seeing that is a big hit home? A big thing that comes up, and not a big thing, but I think I think that comes up from time to time is the issue of communication. Okay. So, um, again, sort of coming back to the idea that professionals, health professionals, are sort of subject to a pretty high moral and ethical duty and Mm -hmm. they're expected to kind of in all their 
conduct to engage uh, sort of in a way that's very professional and very high road, high level kind of conduct. So situations where tempers are flared and tempers are lost and there's some kind of altercation typically does not come out well for the professional, even if they had some grounds to be upset about. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that can come up, and again, this is sort of, can be is often not quite professional misconduct, but a concern is that, you know, some kind of altercation where maybe both parties had a point or maybe even if the member had a point uh, and it was, um, you know, a situation where there was, you know, perhaps some a raised voice or some kind of breakdown of communication that was of that nature. Mm -hmm. Um, That could be problematic for the uh, member if there was a complaint uh, and, and I could see it's possible that the, uh, that the complaints committee would sort of, make some kind of point to say that that's not acceptable, uh, even if even if they were in the right. Mm-hmm. One more thing I wanted to mention is the idea that the college, all the colleges under the RHPA have the authority to regulate, at least to some extent, off-duty conduct. And how that works is that it's an act of professional misconduct to engage in conduct unbecoming the profession. Okay. And it's also an act of professional misconduct to engage in uh, disgraceful, dishonorable, and unprofessional conduct. And those terms are not defined. Right. So so what what that's come to mean is if there's sufficient nexus between the off-duty conduct and the profession, um, then that conduct is potentially subject to regulation. So some examples of that, and, and I'll pull from cases that are um, that are reported uh, because the hypotheticals here can kind of get out of hand. Yeah. Uh, but you know, one of the main cases in this area, and and again, in these cases, tend to you know you kind of have to reach to the other health professions too because there's not a lot of these cases. But mm-hmm. in one of the cases, it was a. Uh, it was a physician and it was a, there was an altercation at a like a child's play, like a school, like essentially a, some kind of event at a school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was an altercation and there's some, you know, yelling and some threats made. And and that was found to have been uh, dishonorable conduct for a physician. Wow. So had nothing. It was not a patient, had nothing to do with yeah. providing medicine. But it was, you know, the college felt that it was close enough to the practice that um, that it amounted to an act of professional misconduct. So that'll give you a flavor of and it really depends on the facts. Yeah. And, and like I said, I know I know we can run away with the hypotheticals No, I'm just curious. Here. Like when you say close enough to the practice, what do you mean by close enough to the practice? Just because I'm dealing with, you know, a member of the general public and that's what I would do in my place of work? I don't remember the exact reasoning of yeah. the nexus, but but essentially it was it was of the nature that it's unbecoming a physician okay. to, to engage in a verbal altercation that made someone else feel intimidated uh, in any setting. Oh, wow. See, I can imagine that. And kind particularly, of- a, it was like a child, yeah, this, like a school setting, kind yeah. of setting, right? So, you know, you can you can imagine a situation like perhaps like some kind of road rage incidents could come yeah. into this where there's some kind of th- safety threat. Yeah thread that runs uh runs through these um that could be one example of them but 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 the thing to remember is that the college has the authority to regulate off-duty conduct uh and and that professional hat to some extent never comes off and that's the case for all the health professionals that's the case for um you know for lots of other professions as well as the case for lawyers there's so So. many people that i i don't think would have would have realized that at all exactly for example i can see how unbecoming of a massage therapist would be to go to a strip joint. We well, could make that. That's an that's an argument that would have to be made. But yeah. uh, but I'm I can definitely sh- well, I can see how that 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 conduct because you are dealing with disrobed bodies on your table and then in your off duty you're potentially sexualizing disrobed bodies. Or have I gone like way on the deep end on that? Can I still go to a strip joint? No, I'm kidding. I'm not a, I'm not a strip joint kind of guy. <laughs> I'm but. not giving advice on this. <laughs> you know, I think that's a little far out, that hypothetical. I'm okay. not sure if that's happened. Yeah. Um, and I think the colleges, in, in, in fairness, do not overreach too far gotcha. with the unbecoming stuff. Um, so, so the un- unbecoming stuff would, would and I don't want to ride on the hypotheticals, um, but the unbecoming stuff most likely comes out of something larger. So for example, that altercation that happened, maybe the authorities were called, that type of thing? No, because that's going to involve the criminal aspect of it. It's possible. I mean, it's possible. Yes, it's possible. That's how it came about. I'm not quite sure in that case. But, you know, I think when you think about conduct and becoming, 
you're probably thinking about something that is much more closely related to the practice. Okay. It's not a free-for-all. And, and in my experience, the colleges don't treat it as a free-for-all. But, but the thing to remember and the thing to take away mm-hmm. is that professionals, health professionals, do not entirely take their hat off right. at the end of the day and mm-hmm. go home and are not responsible for any of their conduct. Um, and more and more so, they're responsible for lots of different conduct, including charges of all kinds of nature and, and criminal convictions that have nothing to do with the practice of their profession, right? But how it's seen is that a criminal conviction of any nature is serious enough, regardless of what it has to do with that. It impacts on your ability to practice. And if you kind of extrapolate from that into the kind of conduct that may not be criminal conduct, but is sort of still problematic enough that if 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 proven could could raise questions in the public's mind about the ability of that person to practice and that question will depend on the profession itself mm-hmm. that question will depend on the circumstances um so i don't think um you know the example that i gave which is a reported decision uh i don't think that's necessarily the case that in every circumstance that would have been held to be an act of professional misconduct. It was just that in that circumstance it was. Mm-hmm. So it would really depend on the facts. Oh, I didn't know to that extent. I knew a little bit of that. The majority of therapists would have no bloody idea. Yeah. And it's difficult because there are no, <laughs> like there are no answers to those questions. Yeah. Like there is no um, way I could tell you where that line is. Right. Uh, it's, it is a gray area. Uh, and it's important when you're dealing with a gray area, when you're a professional, it's important to make sure you're well back from any gray area, right? So as to avoid any problems. But mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if you could answer this or if you want to answer it. Of all the health professions that you deal with, percentage-wise, massage therapists that you end up having to deal with, what's that at? I have a number of clients who are massage therapists. Uh, it's one of the more active professions in terms of discipline and complaints and things like that there's Mm -hmm. it's also it's a big it's a big membership pool so that probably has something to do with it you know there's really smaller colleges that are don't have a whole lot of proceedings just because there's so few members right we all know massage therapists so many people go to massage therapists a very common thing so naturally there's going to be lots of complaints and lots of proceedings Mm -hmm. i have done lots of work in the in the space in the cmto uh, with CMTO processes and I have lots of clients who are massage therapists but sort of not beyond that I can't really give you a breakdown. Tell us a little bit about discipline hearings and how that plays out. Okay, so a discipline hearing um, happens after uh, a complaint or an investigation has been referred to discipline by the ICRC. Mm-hmm. So the ICRC has to screen it into discipline for a discipline hearing to happen. Right. Um, so what happens with discipline hearings is that once a hearing, a hearing is essentially kind of like when you think about a trial, when you think about a trial in a courtroom, it's very similar to how a discipline hearing runs. Yep. So, but instead of a judge, it's a panel of usually five members of a discipline committee. Right. Uh, they will include the members of that college. So massage therapists in, in our example of CMTO, and they'll include public uh, members as well. So those will be people appointed to the college to sit on these committees who are represent the public. So those are the decision makers and they have to make the decision together. Um, they can have dissents. Sometimes it happens that there will be someone, a member or two, who will dissent from the majority. Mm-hmm. But if the majority makes a finding, that's what the finding is. In addition to the panel, there is going to be the college prosecutor who is going to be the person prosecuting the allegations. So they're acting on behalf of the college. Their, their goal is to, not not their goal, but their job and their role there is to advance the college's allegations right. and to call evidence and to make legal arguments uh, advancing the college's allegations. That person is a lawyer, Okay, I think 100% of the time, but yeah. it's close to 100% of the time, that person is a lawyer. Um in addition to the prosecutor, usually, uh, certainly the CMTO has independent legal counsel. Mm-hmm. So that is a lawyer who the CMTO hires to um, give the panel, or rather the discipline committee retains a lawyer, mm-hmm. uh, and, and that lawyer gives advice to the panel about questions of law. Right. So for instance, if there's a legal objection or if there's a, a motion that's brought, that's a legal motion, mm-hmm. um, the panel will itself need advice about what the law is because the panel are not lawyers. Right. And they will seek legal advice from 
the ILC. The ILC sits in the room and gives advice in to like in the open. So they give it to the panel out in the open. Okay. And then after that advice is given, the prosecutor and also any defense counsel or the member can also comment on that advice. So if the prosecutor or defense counsel doesn't agree with the legal, legal advice, mm-hmm. they can put that on the record and that can be argued as well. Okay. So other than the prosecutor, the ILC, the panel, um, there's usually also a college representative who sits in on the hearings. That leaves the member. So the member is either represented or not represented. But if the member is represented, they would have their lawyer there who would argue the case on their behalf, essentially. So they would be the ones making the objections. They would be cross-examining the witnesses. They would be calling the witnesses. They would be doing opening and closing statements and things like that. Mm -hmm. So discipline hearings take at least a couple of days. uh, But they can take a couple of weeks, depending on that. Um, Members are... uh, if they lose, they can be exposed to co- exposed to costs of have of the college having run the prosecution. Yep. Um, so, you know, there are usually opportunities to resolve um, resolve allegations, which typically involve some kind of guilty uh, admission or some kind of admission to allegations of professional misconduct. But yep. that typically happens before the hearing. If you're going ahead to the hearing, typically you're going ahead with the whole thing. Um, I mean, you can resolve them at any point, but usually if you haven't resolved it by the time you go to a hearing, you're not, it's not going to happen. So, um, sometimes in, in cases involving sexual allegations, the college mate and in situations where the member is not represented, the college sometimes can appoint, uh, it's, it's a, it's a role known as amicus curiae. Uh, it's it's a lawyer who's appointed for the sole purposes of cross-examining the complainant. Okay. There are situations where the member might receive very limited, it's not even assistance to the member, it's really assistance to the panel. Yeah. Uh, and the only thing that lawyer would do is cross-examine the complainant about their uh, their allegations. And then they would, that, that would be their only role and they wouldn't stick around typically for the beginning or the end. Uh, so... Basically, all the evidence is presented at the end of the evidence. Uh, the lawyers make argument about that evidence. So, you know, you present to the panel how you submit that the evidence should be interpreted. And then after that, you go home. And then several months later, uh, you get a decision, a written decision from the panel, which makes findings and uh, and, and comes and, and there's you know, there's findings on the professional misconduct allegations. Typically, it is after that point that you would have a penalty hearing. So, uh, and, and and depending on what the allegations are, you may or may not need an extensive penalty hearing. So, right. if the if the if the allegations made out require mandatory revocation, you wouldn't have an extensive penalty hearing. You would still have some form of a hearing for the order, mm-hmm. but um, you know, you wouldn't really be making argument about what the appropriate penalty is. But in other situations, there could be a lot of disagreement about what the appropriate penalty penalty is based on the facts that are made out. So you could have like a second hearing essentially just about what the penalty should be. I don't know why I was always kind of under the impression that the penalty tends to be a little more strict, if if that's the best word to use, when you tend to claim not guilty for a whole bunch of shit. Does that make sense? Versus, yeah, you know what? I know what I did. I know I did something wrong. I'm wrong here and the college might and um this is just my interpretation and the college looks at that as okay well you 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 recognize that there's fault here versus over here I didn't do this I'm not guilty I did nothing wrong and then clearly you have but you know you don't understand that you've done something wrong right so what happens in the penalty stage is that you end up arguing a whole bunch of aggravating and mitigating circumstances so um that could be part of the argument on the penalty in the penalty hearing side of things right. uh, that, um, you know, if, if the conduct is of such a nature that it doesn't, there, you know, throughout the course of the hearing, there's no demonstration of, for instance, having learned from the experience or having, you know, having in some ways accepted it and sort of learned from it and mm-hmm. moved forward, you know, that's a really good thing to demonstrate as part of the penalty hearing. And if that's missing, that could be argued by the, by the college that that's an aggravating circumstance. Right. Um, so, so all of those considerations become part of the argument at the penalty stage of the hearing where you get to stand up and say why the penalty should be less and the college gets to stand up and say why, in their opinion, the penalty should be more. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. And is there any appeal process for once a decision's already been made? Or if the college, 
Is there ever a, a situation where the college fails to come up with a decision in an appropriate amount of time? Uh Hypothetically, I'm not aware of any specific examples. Hypothetically, if long enough, it does take a long time. It can take like a year to okay. get a decision. Uh, hypothetically, I guess it's possible for long enough to have gone by that that in itself kind of amounts to um, some kind of issue. But in uh, in a practical sense, it's going to take a long time to get a decision. Right. There's not really anything you can do about the how the length of time it get, takes to get a decision. Okay. Um, the appeal process from a discipline uh, from a discipline committee decision, the appeals from that decision lie to the judicial court, uh, and uh, you have to file a notice of appeal within 30 days of getting the decision. And it's important if the uh, if the penalty and the liability part of the hearing are split. Mm-hmm. to make sure that steps are taken to preserve the appeal right at that first stage. So when you get the first decision on professional misconduct, on whether or not it's made out, mm-hmm. it's important to preserve the right of appeal at that early stage. Okay. Uh, there's there's some sort of disagreement about whether or not you would be totally, uh, you know, if you couldn't proceed with an appeal, if you did it later. But again, like best practices is to preserve that right of appeal early yeah. uh, and then proceed with the penalty hearing. See, this is stuff that no one would ever know. Exactly. And this is why it's coming back to, to, to an earlier point is that you, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Uh, and it's really important with all kinds of matters to make sure that you're on the right track early on so that you don't have to then be arguing that you should be allowed to have an extension of time in your appeal because you didn't know. And that's more time and more money that's going to cost in terms of actually getting that going. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right on. Okay. Thanks for hanging. No, thank you for having me. This was this is my first podcast. Nice. So. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, give everyone your contact info. Tell them how to find you. I will. Um, so again, my name is Lydia Yermakova. I'm a lawyer in Toronto and I do uh, professional uh, professional regulatory defense. Um, I'm at a firm called Kozabraki Law. K-O-Z-I-E-B-R-O-C-K-I. And you can reach me at 416-925-5445. And if you want to send me an email, it's L-I-D-I-Y-A at kazibrakilaw.com. And if you check out the website, kazibrakilaw.com, we actually publish lots of content um, and by content, I mean, uh, you know, articles which summarize all the things that I just told you about. So the complaints process, the discipline process, registration, um, appeals, like like HPARB, which we didn't even get into, um, all all the stuff that really we just talked about in general terms. Um, it's all on the website. So if you're ever kind of wondering about general questions about the process, you can look there. You can give me a call. Uh, and all that. Right on. Okay. Thanks, thanks again. So if you have any dealings with the college, please, please, please seek some professional help. Don't don't go it on your own. It doesn't make sense. Don't do it. Uh, you know, we're not lawyers. We're, we're body workers. <laughs> <laughs> right on. Thanks, thanks so for much. hanging. Thanks. You have been listening to two massage therapists in a microphone. Peace.